of the cornerstones of our democracy. It's law that allows us to live in freedom. Hello everyone and welcome to the Decrypting Crypto Podcast, a Castbox original show. I'm Matthew House Barbie, and usually I'm joined with my reliable co-host Austin Knight, but unfortunately today, well unfortunately for me, he's traveling around the world enjoying himself. So I am going to be your sole host for today's show, and we have a really interesting show today with a really interesting guest. But taking a little snapshot at the past couple of weeks, in particular last week, we saw pretty steep drop in the price, especially of Bitcoin and most of the other major altcoins dropping in price. A lot of people kind of panicking. I mean, it's not been any different to nearer the start of this year, but one of the things looking into a lot of the discussion around this has seemed to point back to the US SEC's decision to postpone a decision on the most recent Bitcoin ETF proposal. Now, for those of you listening wondering what the hell is an ETF, without getting into too much of the technical details here, it stands for an exchange-traded fund. And in the case of a Bitcoin ETF, the most simple explanation of the impact of this is that investors would actually be able to gain exposure to Bitcoin without actually having to directly purchase Bitcoins. Ultimately, what a lot of people are saying is that bigger institutional investors with much deeper pockets would be much more likely to start investing in Bitcoin this way. And one of the main reasons for that is they wouldn't need to go through a crypto exchange to gain exposure. This is kind of similar to how the Bitcoin futures contracts, which launched in late 2017, which were off the back of a, a huge boom in prices. And I don't want to get into the whole prediction around whether this will have Bitcoin's price go to the moon, right? That's not what this podcast is all about. But I think it's certainly interesting to dig into some of the reasons why the market sentiment has dropped pretty dramatically for anyone that, that holds cryptocurrency. That's pretty visible to see. And speaking of Bitcoin, uh, I was I was also reading a, a somewhat concerning article that was published by Bloomberg at the start of August. And I, I really want to dig into some of the the ways in which they gathered some of the data behind this, but the article really zeroed in on the use of Bitcoin within commerce. And one of the stats that they pulled out was that in the past nine months, pretty much since the start of of 2018, the use of Bitcoins in commerce, so actually to buy things both online and offline, has reduced by as much as 80%, 80% that is, which is a pretty significant drop. I think with the bear market that we've seen for the large majority of this year coming off the highs of November and December 2017, I think it's fair to say people have been less amped up around the use of Bitcoin and there's been a lot less talk about it from a positive sense. That said, like I think one of the positives that, that we will take from this is that it's still early days. I certainly am not personally going to be reading into this a whole load. And we're seeing a lot of companies in the blockchain space 
actually trying to make it easier for certainly online businesses in particular to accept cryptocurrency. One one in particular here was Coinbase. I'm sure many of you listening have heard of Coinbase. They seem to be launching and buying new companies at an absolutely incredible and unfathomable pace. So one of those recent additions that they made and announced in the past few weeks actually was a plugin for WooCommerce, which for those of you that haven't heard of WooCommerce before, it's one of the most popular e-commerce platforms so that you can build online stores in that would actually connect up and enable anyone with a WooCommerce store to accept cryptocurrency. I think this is one step towards a longer, greater vision of the widespread use of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies in everyday transactions and ultimately everyday life. Now, before I go on a crazy tangent here, I want to talk a little bit about the guest we have on the show today. And the guest that we have today was really off the back of the great response we had from our interview with Amy Wan, the CEO of Sagewise, which is a legal dispute company uh, focused in the blockchain space. If you didn't listen to that episode, I would highly recommend going back in and listening to it. It was from a few weeks ago. And a big congratulations to Amy, who subsequently has just raised 1.25 million US dollars in seed funding for Sagewise. So that's, that's fantastic. And we thought with that in mind, why don't we get someone else in that's focused in the legal space with a slightly different skew? So today we're going to be speaking with David Rune from Open Law. David isn't a legal professional himself, but a technologist and someone who has been involved in this intersection between law and technology, and more specifically, blockchain technology. Now, Open Law is actually part of the consensus family of companies. Uh, you may remember that we also spoke with Andrew Keyes from Consensus uh, a couple of months back now. That was a super interesting conversation. But we're going to be taking a slightly different path in the conversation we had with Andrew with David today. So without further ado, I'd just really like to introduce David into the podcast. So David, welcome to the Decrypting Crypto Podcast. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Hey, David, let's start with your own personal story. So how did you first get involved in the blockchain space? So I actually come from the distributed system space, especially I was working in my previous startup on a project to handle open data sets. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was looking at a way to handle a registry of sources for this data to be able to point back to the data when someone wants to write an article about them. And I was starting working on the on possible solution, trying to see what kind of uh, P2P storage system are there. That's how I ended up looking and reading about IPFS. And then the registry came and that's where I started reading about Ethereum. And Ethereum got me hooked very, very fast, especially with the DAO concept. Mm. And that's how I started into all this, this big journey that is the blockchain today. Amazing. And just for the purpose of our listeners, could you just give a brief, uh, you mentioned IPFS there. Could you just give a very brief overview on, in layman's terms what, what that actually is? So IPFS uh, stands for Interplanetary File System. is a um, peer-to-peer file system over the internet where you can create 
kind of a network of storage so that you don't need a central server to to host anything on the web you can use this this uh this network right Awesome. Thanks for that. I think it's just useful to in a in a space where there's so much terminology is to just make sure everyone's on the same page. Yes, definitely. So right now you are focused on open law and that's the that's that's your company right now, part of the consensus group, uh, right? Yes. So could you give our listeners a little background into what the platform actually does and what the core vision for open law is? Yes, sure. So the idea, the big vision of open law is to become the legal layer of the blockchain scene and also the legal layer of any other solution out there. Um, the first step we, we took with open law was to create some kind of language that we call right now the open law markup language. We, don't, we haven't found a better name yet <laughs> to try to interface between the lawyers and the technical people. So I th we think that there is a big issue today that for lawyers, it's really hard to work in the technological space. It's really hard for them to understand. And we, the technological people, we have to understand that they have a lot at stake. So they cannot simply say, oh, I trust you guys because they have their, their career at stake. They have a lot of money at stake maybe the reputation of people at stake. So they have to make sure that they fully understand what it entails and what will happen if something goes wrong. And so we really are trying to build this very opinionated language so that they can, on the one hand, very easily generate their the very simple documents, but on the other hand, being able to, to integrate with all these new capabilities, blockchain or otherwise. And the other point that is really important in our vision is that we want to bring the spirit of open source into the legal space. What does it mean is that today the legal space is very much in a lot of enclaves, small or big. People share very little data. Things are being done over and over again. And there's a lot of waste in the way people are working because they are not sharing their work. So we hope with our platform, openlaw.io, that lawyers will come together, a little bit like what happened with Wikipedia, being able to organically build some kind of standard of a lot of contracts and uh, agreements that are used today. I see. So it, it sounds to me like this, this feels like a, a large open source repository of kind of blockchain-based legal documentation? Would that be a fair uh, summary? So the open source part is not only blockchain specific. It's really the idea to make it, it could be for your wedding, could be for your cleaning lady at home. It could be also to create a company and to do more complex deals. What we hope is that people working to, together, creating kind of standard libraries the same way the open source did for, for the tech world, will get things that will be more complex also and being able to do things that weren't possible before because here the technology will help us reason about all these legal terms and legal concepts. Got it. I see. That that makes a lot more sense. And how many people or companies are, are actually using the open law platform right now? And are you seeing certain types of individuals and companies using the platform more than others? So right now we are still in the development phase. So we don't have uh, people in production. 
Mm. But uh, we have a lot of, we have love and interest from the legal world, especially like from law firms who try to get ready from the next wave. They understand that there is something coming. They understand that technology will change their work and they're trying to get uh, ahead of the curve. We also see a lot of legal tech companies, blockchain or otherwise, being very interested in what we do. And other than that, it will be programming lawyers. We call them uh, unicorns because they are so hard to find. <laughs> but we see more and more of these people who are passionate about the mix of the, these two worlds and, and see that a huge opportunity for them here because there's actually intersection between law and, and, and technology where their legal background will help them build libraries for legal-only people and legal framework for technical-only people. This is interesting. We, we spoke with Amy Wan, uh, the CEO of SageWise, a few episodes back, and SageWise actually focuses in the legal space as well. And one of the things that we discussed there was actually the changing role and skills that blockchain technology in particular is going to kind of mold into new lawyers. You mentioned there this intersection between legal professionals that also have technical skills. How important do you see that intersection of skills for people entering into the legal space in the next, say, five to 10 years? So as I said earlier, I think one of the big change will be that the capabilities that technology will bring to these lawyers will make them like a tenfold or hundredfold more efficient than the lawyers today. Because today they have to do a lot of tedious work that when you think about it, they become really, really expensive secretaries because they have to do checks like they have a 300 pages um, legal documents and they want to make sure that the verbs are conjugated right or they want to make sure that the numbers are right or they want to make sure that there is no typo on the name that has been copy-pasted 20 times. <laughs> and those are billable hours. Like Those are adding up and are very, very costly. And we hope that with a system like ours, and I think that if not ours, any other would, would do, would bring some new capabilities there where basically people will be able to extract their knowledge and be able to, to repeat it for others. Basically how the technology works today. I mean, nobody has a PhD in AI, language, data structure, algorithm, but we use library that have been done by people who are experts in this domain and we use them. And I think that's what's going to happen here. People highly skilled and highly specialized that will create very high value uh, legal framework that other will use. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see some of the new roles that start opening up within organizations like this and how this whole space is going to impact both the legal sector and people seeking legal advice. And, and on that note, when you think about whether it's open law or platforms like open law, where, where do you see the value for the end user in all of this, the people seeking legal professional help? Is there is much going to change from their side, from working in the current system versus this new system that you're talking about? So I can talk only for open law, not for the others, but uh, for open law, 
definitely end user will see a, a huge change. And I think the, the first big, big change will be that it's as if they had a personal lawyer looking at their agreement 24-7 for the rest of the contract lifecycle. Meaning that because of the data structure that is built under the hood, you can always open your contract and see what's going on with it. What is the status of it? Did something change? Have all the payment been done? Or did someone do something that was illegal as based on the, on the agreement? Because everything is audited and we know that usually when we are talking about defending yourself legally, we just, we say, always have a paper trail. So here is the ultimate paper trail because it's even cryptographically proven everything that has happened with this contract. So because of that, my hope, our hope is that for a lot of dispute, people will be able to defend themselves with little to no need for lawyers. Because if it's a clear-cut breach of contract, they can just go show the thing saying, look, this, this event has happened, that shouldn't have happened, here's what the contract said, this is what I want. And we hope that even arbitration uh, platform, dispute resolution platform, will even automate this kind of result uh, of a resolution. So what we're saying here is that there's going to be, you're almost insinuating to some extent that some of these agreements could almost remove the need for a lawyer altogether? Not at all. Not at all. I, I think that it will change dramatically their role, but it won't re remove them. Uh, I like to take the example of... Uh, of the financial industry and how their work has changed because of technology. But nobody would say that you don't need accountant and you don't need a financial expert and, fin and CFOs and things like that. It's just that their work have changed. They're not w writing on papers what's going on with your company. They're using ERP and they're using Excel and they're using a lot of technology to help them understand creating more complex strategies, financial strategies, and, and move their company forward. And I think that the legal world needs that, and he's, this is lacking. Of course, when we talk with lawyers, they have billable hours, so it's always like a conflict of interest. But if you talk with uh, any legal department in all the companies I've talked to, they always say that this would be more than welcome of a help because they have a hard time just keeping track of everything that is going on with the contracts because you can imagine companies like the big Fortune 500 companies, they have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of contracts. And if they are not well-structured, it's really hard to know what's going on. Yeah, I, I can only imagine the likes of Google and Facebook, uh, et cetera, how, and, and for uh, a lot of the financial institutions as well, how many contracts, records, documents that they have to manage right now exactly and and for me ultimately the the vision is more of a cryptographic vision meaning that it should be easy and cheap to defend yourself and should be extremely expensive and hard to attack someone so if you are in your rights it should be almost free to defend yourself because it doesn't make sense that someone has to to pay thousands if not tens of thousands of dollars because someone try to, to, to fool them or try to steal from them. That's interesting to touch on because I, mean, I, I can't imagine many people disagreeing with that statement that people should be free to defend themselves. Absolutely. Now, let's dig into this a little bit more in practicality. So you mentioned 
the role of the lawyers probably changing. Uh, I think there's maybe an argument to be said that there could be efficiencies made there in the terms of the hours they they personally spend that could be billable. I think you could maybe, to play devil's advocate, argue that with more specialized legal roles, their hourly rates may also increase due to their specialisms in this. And when we think about dispute resolution, which you were talking about, almost could become automated in some respects. Do, yes. Do you think from a legal framework we're even close to that yet? Like, I know this may sound basic, but like, are these contracts actually considered completely legally binding contracts right now? Would they uphold in a courtroom and be seen as the exact same as any other standard agreement that would be made? I, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, so I will not say definitely yes or no. But I would argue that actually smart contracts is it's always a tricky word because we hear contracts or we think of legal agreements, but actually they are programs. And they tend to be legally binding the same way as calling a server somewhere that will bill you is legally binding. If you use a service, let's say that you, you do a call and you start, um, you start using a service on the net, usually they can go after you if you're, you are not willing to pay. Hmm. The big advantage of smart contracts is, is that you can increase trust in the execution because you can go and audit the code so that there is not this black box approach that we have with the big SaaS provider today. And the second thing is that it should be more or less, because we've seen a lot of contrary examples, but more or less deterministic in how it will behave. I see. Okay. And just to clarify, actually, for everyone listening, when you talk about a lot of the agreements that are being made and i know you have you mentioned earlier on in our conversation the open law markup language when you talk about this markup language is all of this ultimately creating smart contracts on the ethereum blockchain is is that what all of this is moving towards or is this operating in a slightly different way because i i've heard terminology around like smart contracts and then there's also smart agreements which in all honesty i'm not as familiar with the terminology in terms of smart agreements so so could you maybe make that a little less cloudy for both me and our listeners of course so the open law platform is not running directly on the ethereum blockchain but is using it so the, the, the big difference for us between smart contracts and smart agreements is that a smart contract is like an Ethereum, this code that exists on the blockchain and that is being executed there, where the smart agreement is a definition of an agreement between parties that will be executed and verified through cryptographic proof and verification. So things like if we enter an agreement, the smart agreement should be able to self-verify that the signatures are indeed correct and that it was for him and from the identities that are being registered in the contract. And once we have an execution, it should be able to retrieve cryptographic proofs from the blockchain, making sure that the execution was correct and it was based on what has been agreed in the smart agreement. So it's something that is a bit more passive, meaning that it's more focus on formalizing what we agree on in an agreement and being able to audit all of that. And that, in effect, helps us reducing drastically the risk of dispute and therefore dispute resolution. Because when do we have a dispute when we disagree? Mm. And if everything is formalized, it's much harder or it's much more unlikely to get to a point of break of consensus. So 
that's what we we take from uh, from the blockchain is really this, the importance of consensus in an agreement and the formal definition of every term in an agreement so that the risk of being in a dispute is very very low i see and open laws markup language how does that specifically factor into this I'd, I'd love to dive into this in a little bit more detail around the language you've created and how that's actually being applied in in all of what you're saying so here as i said earlier the the open law market language main goal is to interface between the legal world and the technological world so the way it works is that it's a mix between markdown language and and straight up templating where the, the goal is to have actual agreements or set of agreements so that in last resort you can always go to court with it and we think it's very important because we saw what happened with the DAO and with all the people talking about code is law but it's there is such a thing as a bug and it is such a thing as an unintended consequences of something happening and I'm not saying that agreements don't ever have bugs, but it's really important to have this differentiation where we are still human and we, st we still have our ways of understanding things. And it's good to have a paper trail of it, like a, an actual text that we can read. But then on the other side, we have an integration layer where with this markup language, you can define which smart contract has to be called with which values and parameters and when and at what sequence it should be called. If you have looked at the demo of the employee of a letter, we did a smart contract integration where someone was being paid every minute of a fraction of his salary. But the idea here is, is to make sure that the parameters that are being used to generate the legal agreements and the parameters that's being used to, to call and to integrate with any other system are the same. So we can really link them and being formally sure that we are really talking about the same thing. They, they will never be out of sync. They will never be, oh, I, I've changed something in the text, but I forgot to change it in the code because they are one in the same. So you're trying to create very much like a consistent, templated approach here to a lot of these agreements that ultimately mean they're tried and tested across a bunch of different... You're trying to make them as foolproof as possible, it sounds like. Yes, and also as easy as possible to test. So this language is not Turing complete, and we did it on purpose because if it's not Turing complete, it's much easier to formally uh, analyze it and make assumptions and create rules around it. So we haven't created these tools yet, but this is I mean, our roadmap to try to create tools to formally test and verify the, the this uh, agreement, but even something I call to legally test and, and verify them. So being able to create some um, use cases, some legal use cases, and see how the, the, the documents and the, the agreement would react. And is there a case, do, what, what do you ultimately see as the extent to which ultimately these smart agreements can be used in the future with the legal space. Do you see situations where there are just certain legal agreements where this technology may not be the best solution? Or do you believe that actually there, there just isn't really a situation where this technology, whether it's open law or a, another platform doing a similar, similar thing, could improve the process? So that's a, 
I think that's a really big question. I'm I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know all the the, the situation. But I would say that <laughs> I, I can't really think of a situation where having a way to formally define all this wouldn't be a good thing. But I think one thing that is really important here is that to being able to gradually go into the technology. We also, something that we try to do is to make it so that you don't need to, to eat the entire cake if when it's being served. You can take slice by slice. So here you can really start by just saying, okay, the only thing I want is, for example, you want a divorce, maybe a smart contract and blockchain is not the best technology, but you want to start with a very simple document where it's easy for you to discuss with your other party without the need of a lawyer right away. And you only go to a lawyer at the later stage to make sure that everything is okay, that you haven't missed anything. And you can you could reduce your fees like that, for example. But you you could imagine like big things where, so for example, you want to buy a house. So the, the, the paper part would use things like that, but you still need a lawyer just because they have the experience maybe to tell you what to look for and what to make sure that have they revealed everything? Have you missed anything? And things like that. And I feel like it would be fair to assume that ultimately a lot of this technology in the grand scheme of things is in its infancy, and in, in particular, more from people just even being used to comprehending and understanding what all of this means for the everyday person looking to do this. I feel like as this becomes more commonplace in people's lives and the technology grows and becomes the norm it would make sense from everything that you're saying david that this is going to be widely adopted and embraced by really both both parties on on each side exactly and i think that that's why i cannot really think of a situation where it's not a good thing to use this kind of technology is that we hope for the non-legal people like people like you and me if we we mm. get into like a complex contracts that they will help them understand what they're signing and not only that but understanding how they can defend their rights and basically having a more just relationship with the other parties because today some people are using law as a as a weapon because they know that you don't don't know how to defend yourself you don't know really what you've signed for it's really hard even sometimes impossible for you to retrieve all the information regarding your contract so you don't know how to defend yourself. So it's really a way to even the playing field and so that even people who don't have tens of thousands of, of dollars laying around to give to lawyers can build a case, can defend themselves and can make sure that they're being treated fairly in any situation. Well, it sounds like a very noble vision and I and I really wish you all the best in achieving that because it, it, it really does sound like it fits in with the general ethos that many of the blockchain projects that we've been kind of speaking to people around have been aligned with at least and this one seems particularly like it can add significant social impact just before we wrap up david this has been fantastic chatting to you through all of this uh, Thank you. I, I am not by any stretch of the imagination a legal professional so i'm i'm uh, learning a lot as i'm speaking but where can our listeners learn a little bit more about open law and maybe where can they follow you on social media what would be the best way for them to learn more there so we have our website openlaw.io 
Sorry, I recommend and invite everyone to go there. They can create an account and go and browse the templates. They can even upload one and try and, and play with the, the markup language. We also have a Slack where the link is is there. Otherwise, we have a Twitter, Open Law Official. Yeah, and that's it. Awesome. That's great, David. Well, thanks again for taking the time out to chat to us. Uh, it's been really great talking with you. And yeah, I wish you all the best for the future of the project. I'm sure we're going to be keeping a close eye on it. Thank you very much. And thank you for your time. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and want to show your appreciation to myself and Matt, make sure you subscribe and leave us a review on the CastBox app or your favorite podcasting platform. We'd really appreciate that. And if you haven't already, you can download the free CastBox app where you'll find us as one of the CastBox original shows. You can also visit thecoinoffering.com to learn more about cryptocurrencies, get caught up on some news, see how your currency is performing, and you can follow us on Twitter at the coin offering. Finally, you can ask us any questions you have by emailing us at podcast at thecoinoffering.com. The Decrypting Crypto Podcast is a Castbox original show, and its contents should not be used and are not intended as investment advice. Please do your own due diligence before making any investment, cryptocurrency or otherwise.